started. Um, good morning. There's usually a lot of thought that goes, usually, I say usually, hopefully, usually a lot of thought that goes into our liturgy each week, trying to connect different themes and things that are in our text. And this morning we'll be talking about Jesus and the woman at the well. And so you'll notice a lot of imagery in our, in our liturgy this morning, in the call to worship and the confession of sin and our prayer of confession. We've seen this imagery of water, of thirsting, of satisfying, all these things that we're going to talk about in our passage this morning. And, and you know, this whole liturgy is, you, most of you have been here long enough and know how we do it and why we do it. But it's good to be reminded that each week we are really preparing ourselves to be, to hear the word, to pray the word, to sing the word, to hear the word preached. And... Sunday morning is where those things are happen in a concentrated way, right? Where throughout the week we have our lives, we have all these things going on, and Sunday we get to come together, hear the word, sing the word, pray the word, and and the liturgy helps us to do that, right? We're called to worship by God from His Word. We are confessing our sins from the Word. We are being assured of God's pardon from the Word. We sing songs that are based on the Word. All these things are means of grace to us. We talk about means of grace a lot with the Lord's Supper, but really the Word and prayer are other means of grace where God changes our souls, where He gives us grace, where we're reminded of the Gospel and what Christ has done. And so just good to be reminded of that this week and every week, really. So if you want to stand with me, we'll begin with the call to worship taken from Isaiah 55. I'll read the bold section if you'll follow along after me. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come by and eat. Come by wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently and eat what is good, and you delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me, hear your soul may live. Amen. If you remain standing and turn to him, 253 will sing, Come Now Found. I was reminded this morning of, in the second verse, maybe you don't know what this word means, it says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. And you're like, Ebenezer Scrooge? Like, what is the son talking about, right? Ebenezer comes from the Old Testament, 1 Samuel. It was the stone that they put up to remember what the Lord had done in the past. This remembrance, a rock of help. And so when the song says, here I raise my Ebenezer, it's to be reminded of God's work for us in the past and his work of salvation. So if you want to stand and sing this morning. Thank 
Heavenly Father, you are the God of the universe, infinite, eternal, all-knowing, and all-powerful, the King of the ages. You alone are the fountain of living water, and the only one who can satisfy our great longings. And yet, in our sin, we forsake you. We try to satisfy ourselves with everything but you. We spend our days laboring for that which does not satisfy. Our hearts are idle factories, and we turn to created things rather than the Creator. Forgive us, Lord, for the sake of Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to look to Christ and run to the fountain that never runs dry. You turn to hymn number 302, A Mighty Fortress.
visit the assurance of pardon. When we come to a place of confession, when we come to a place of remembering of how far away we are from the one true God, He comes back and He assures us and He loves us with, with these words of affirmation. Galatians 3, 26-29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before you in one faith, in one baptism, as your body, as your bride, we come to you, the bridegroom, and we ask our for to work in our lives. Continue to work in our lives. Father, you've given us your word that is full of history. History of the beginning. History of all the things that have happened in the middle. And you've even given us a glimpse into what's going to happen in the future. Well, we just yesterday commemorated a day 20 years ago of history that was a devastation to our nation. And Lord, it's 20 years ago, it seems like yesterday to me. When you see those, those visions again on the TV, we thank you, Lord, that your hand is on us as individuals, as your body, as your bride. Father, I pray that we as a nation would be humble to come under your stead once again. That we would fear you once again, Lord. Father, we ask that uh, your spirit would be here this morning as, as Kendall brings the word. We ask, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, that you would make these hearts of flesh that you've already given us, Lord you would make them even more sensitive to your truth. Lord, let us see ourselves when we read about the woman at the well. May we see ourselves as being just blinded by the very sin that, that we have, Lord. And that you would bring truth in a loving, miraculous way, Lord. And that we would proclaim your name to the nations because of that. In Jesus' name. Amen. So our confession of faith is uh, the Baptist Catechism. Did you change this from the, the email we got? Okay, thank you. No, that's good because I was like... I'm going to have Pastor explain this one because <laughs> it says a lot of words and we're going to let you explain this, all right? But good. What is God? Well, God is a spirit. 
infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Amen. You guys can be seated. Son, the Messiah who's come. And that was really on the tail end of this interaction with Nicodemus that we saw at the beginning of chapter 3. Nicodemus was this religious leader, this man of the Pharisees, and I think it's intentional that John, the writer of this gospel, puts the account with Nicodemus and the account with the woman at the well next to each other. Because as we'll see, they couldn't be more different. Not only in the way that they come to Christ, but the way that they've lived their lives up until this point, and even their response after, right? Nicodemus comes at night. This woman comes in the middle of the day. Nicodemus was a man. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, the teacher of the law. He would have known the scriptures intimately. He would have had many parts of it memorized. He was morally upright. He was looked on as others by as being a religious person, as someone to aspire to. And this woman could not be more different. She was a woman, first of all. She was a Samaritan woman, which we'll find out more about that later. She had... She was a nobody, right? He is a teacher of the law. She doesn't even get a name in this account. She doesn't even, she's not even named. She's just the woman from Samaria. She, we find out as we read our passage that she's not only a Samaritan, but an immoral person. That she has sin in her life and in her past. And so John is putting these two people next to each other. Nicodemus the Pharisee and this woman at the well, and we'll see this sort of great reversal happen by the end of this chapter, that we're reminded that Jesus came to save sinners, that he didn't come for just the religiously elite, he didn't just come for the people that had it all together, he came for those that were deep in their sins, that were not righteous, if you remember from Luke 4, not the righteous Jesus came to call, but sinners. And we even see the difference in Jesus' approach, right? Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night with his own righteousness, right? He's a Pharisee. He's obeyed the law. And Jesus says, 
you must be born again. He says you can't do anything to earn this righteousness, to earn this salvation. You have to stop relying on yourself and this legalism that you've built yourself on. And that's the approach Jesus has with this Pharisee. And we'll see today with the woman at the well that his approach is different, right? She's a sinner. And she's one that's looking for satisfaction in her sin. She thinks that if she pursues these different things that she'll find satisfaction. And Jesus recognizes that. And he says, I'm the living water. I'm the one that's going to satisfy your needs. Not these other immoral things. Not these sins in your life but me. So hopefully we'll see that today. We'll, we'll see that the Lord alone knows the desires of our hearts, the, the inner deepest needs that we have, and that he alone is able to satisfy those needs, not the things of this world. So we're going to read the passage. I'll pray for us, and then, then we'll look at God's word. So we'll read verses 1 through 26 this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, it was about the sixth hour, or noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you are now, the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for John chapter 4, where we read about the woman at the well. This woman who did not expect to have this encounter with the Messiah, with the Christ, and yet was changed forever because of it. And this morning, Lord, we pray that we would encounter you this morning through your word, by your spirit, that we would see this account and that we would see your grace for sinners like us. Your pursuing love, your desire to seek and save that which was lost. And your patience and tenderness with weary sinners. This morning, Lord, may we encounter the risen Christ by the Spirit. May we be changed this morning. And may we be those that worship you both in spirit and in truth. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Does anybody know who the king of soul is? The king of soul. Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke. Does that name ring a bell? Sam Cooke and the soul stirrers. Many people know he was a... Born in the mid-1930s, he was an artist of soul, one of the first pioneers for soul music. And he actually wrote the song, What a Wonderful World. Most people know that song from Louis Prima, or no, Louis Armstrong, doing the kind of gravelly voice. But it was actually Sam Cooke that wrote that song, The King of Soul. He wrote What a Wonderful World. But his first song that he recorded was called Jesus Gave Me Water. And it, The first song is about John chapter 4. So you can go listen to it later if you want. But it's called Jesus Gave Me Water. It's the first song he recorded. And in that song, the chorus goes, Jesus gave me water, Jesus gave me water, Jesus gave me water, and it was not from the well. And so even Sam Cooke sees the importance of what's going on here, right? That this great story of the woman at the well Jesus using this imagery of living water is not just talking about the physical, but the spiritual. Not just talking about the external, but the internal desires of this woman's heart. So hopefully we'll see that this morning as we study. So first we're going to look at the first six verses. We'll look at sort of the setting here. And we see that the Pharisees are starting to hear about Jesus, right? Last week, some Jews had come to John the Baptist and his disciples and there's this growing tension between the Pharisees and Jesus. And it's only going to grow as we go through the Gospel of John. This tension between the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, and Christ and his ministry. And we see that Jesus hears about this, he learns about it, and he decides to go north. So he's in Jerusalem, the capital, 
and he decides to go back to Galilee to go north. And a couple observations here. Maybe you didn't even pick up on this, but some interesting things to point out in verses 1 through 6. In these verses, we see both the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ. And you might say, Kendall, where is that? <laughs> where are you getting that? Well, just a couple things to point out. In verse 1, it says, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard. And then at the end, verse 6, it says, Jesus became weary as he was. And you might say, Kendall, why are you pointing this out? This idea that Jesus learned and that Jesus grew weary. We find in other gospel accounts that it says Jesus grew in wisdom and knowledge. That Jesus rested, that he slept. You might remember that famous account of Jesus sleeping on the boat when there's a storm around. <laughs> and the reason I point that out is because many people will point to passages like this, point to these verses about Jesus being weary, Jesus needing to rest, and they will say that Jesus, when he took on flesh, that he stopped being God. That he set aside his divinity and that he stopped being God. Because the Old Testament is very clear. Isaiah 40 says that God's understanding is unsearchable. Right? He knows all things. As we said this morning, he's all-knowing, omniscient. But he's also all-powerful. He never gets tired or grows weary. He neither sleeps nor slumbers. And so people could point to the Old Testament and say, See, Jesus became weary here. He's not God. And that's why I put that confusing part of the confession in. If you go to the confession, it's sort of helpful here. It talks about this idea of distinguishing between Christ's human nature and his divine nature. That we don't separate Christ's humanity from his divinity, but we distinguish. That as a man, Christ had limited knowledge of some things, right? He doesn't know the day or hour. He had to grow in wisdom and knowledge. But according to his divine nature, he did not lack any knowledge. He did not lack any power. He never grew tired or weary. So we don't separate the natures of Christ. We distinguish them and we recognize that Jesus can only do what's proper to each nature, if that makes sense. In his human nature, he can only do human things. He can't do divine things. I could explain that later. <laughs> but, right... He's going to grow tired and weary because he's human, because he's taken on flesh, but he never ceases being God. We have to, and the confession is helpful there. It's in chapter 8, paragraph 7, if you wanted to look at that later. So we see the humanity of Christ, but we also see the divinity of Christ in this passage. Because if you look at verse 4, it says, he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria, that this is a divine have to. It's a divine have to. Why? Because the path from Jerusalem to Galilee, where Jesus is going, the quickest way is through Samaria, but nobody went that way. Because, as we read, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. That people would go around Samaria to not pass through. And this was the frequent route for the people, and specifically the Jews of the day. They would go around Samaria. They would not pass through Samaria if they were going to the northern part of Israel. Think of it like if you were going, if you were in Decatur, Jesus is going to the equivalent of Bloomington, 50, 60 miles away. 
You don't have to pass through Clinton. Yes, it's the quickest way, but imagine your mortal enemy lives there. That's basically what's going on. And I think in our day and age, it can be hard for us to understand this tension that was between Jews and Samaritans, right? Because in a lot of ways, if you ask somebody on the street, what do you know about Samaritans? They'll tell you about the Good Samaritan, right? The story from Luke where there's this Good Samaritan that helps Jesus. And it's become common in our pop culture. You talk about someone being a Good Samaritan, someone that helps someone in need. And so if someone, you ask them, what's a Samaritan? They might say, someone that helps somebody, right? But in reality, in this time, at this point, the reason Jesus brought up the Samaritan in that story of the Good Samaritan was to show this contrast. Because he was asked, who is your neighbor? <clears throat> is it just the people that live next to you? Is it just the people you like? And he says, no. <laughs> it's the people that you even don't like, the Samaritan in this case. And so the Samaritans and Jews, as we read, had no dealings with one another. I won't go into a lot of detail, but basically, in the Old Testament, we read of how Samarita, Samaritans came to be, right? Israel was one nation under David, 12 tribes. But after Solomon and the sin of Solomon, the kingdom became divided. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Ten tribes to the north, two to the south. The northern kingdom of Israel was called Israel, which is confusing. And the southern kingdom was called Judah, which is where we get Jew from, Judah, of the tribe of Judah. So there's Israel to the north, Judah to the south. The capital of Judah was Jerusalem. And the capital of Israel to the north was Samaria. And over time, the people, as you know, if you read First and Second Kings, most of the kings are not good. <laughs> But especially in the northern kingdom, in Samaria, almost all of the kings are evil and wicked. So God sends nations to judge the Samaritans. They end up mixing their worship with Yahweh, with the other nations. They call this syncretism, where you combine the worship of God with the worship of idols, this other idolatry that was happening. happening. So Jews in this day hated Samaritans. They hated them because they were half-breeds, right? They were part from they were part, you know, from Israel, but part not. They had mixed with the other nations, and they had all this idolatry and basically heresy that had infiltrated them. And so they had set up their own mountain of worship. They they were just totally in error according to the Jews. And they were. And so they created routes around Samaria, as I said. So when it says Jesus had to pass through Samaria, this is not a geographic have-to, it's a divine have-to. It's not a geographic necessity, it's a divine necessity. Jesus has to pass through Samaria. Why? Because he knows this woman is there and he has a divine appointment for them. So this is the, both the humanity and the divinity of Christ. We see our two-natured Redeemer seeking and saving that which is lost. He is coming to Samaria, to this well, to speak to this woman and ultimately to save her. So that's the setting. And then we see in verses 7 through 15 this offer from Jesus. That 
Jesus is at the well. It's about noontime, which would be the hottest part of the day. And this woman from Samaria comes to draw water. Now, most commentators agree that this concept of her coming in the middle of the day was different. That everybody would go to the well in the morning to draw water. Right? It doesn't make sense to go get water at the earliest part of the day. Or at the hottest part of the day. Not only would it be the most tiring, but your water would evaporate in the long journey. All these sorts of things. So the fact that she's coming to the well to draw water at noon is saying something. And we learn that because of her immoral past, we can make some inferences. That the reason she's coming at this hour is she wants to avoid people. She doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't want to be seen by the people of her village. She doesn't want to go there with the other women to draw water. You can only imagine what people had been saying about her, what they, were, what they did say. And so she wants to avoid that. She probably has this reputation around the area of being this kind of woman. And so more than likely, she's going at noon to avoid all this. So this woman, we find out, has basically three strikes against her. She's a Samaritan, so she's a heretic. She's hated by the Jews. She's a woman, which in that day, men did not speak to women in public outside of their wives. And they definitely didn't speak to women in public about theology, about the things of God. So she's a Samaritan, she's a woman, and she's a sinner, a known sinner, a fornicator, an adulterer, all these things. So she's got three strikes. And everything in that day would have led the disciples and people that would encounter this woman to not speak to her. And yet we see Jesus speaks, which I think there's a lot of application that we can draw from that, but maybe we'll save that for a later time. But we see him speak, and he says to her, give me a drink. He says, give me a drink. He initiates the conversation. He speaks to her and he says, give me a drink. And she's completely shocked, as you see. <laughs> she understands the social norms that he's just broken. These social things that you don't talk to women, you don't talk to Samaritans, you don't talk to sinners and adulterers. He's breaking all these things. He's not breaking God's law. None of these things are against God's law. He is just breaking the social norms of the day. And it's so hard for us to get into that mind space, right? What would it be like for Jesus to do this? It would be so outrageous for him to speak to this woman. And the closest thing that I could think of and that other people have thought of is this whole time in the civil rights, right? Where you literally had separate fountains for whites and for blacks. This unspeakable thing where they would separate people based on their color. And it would be like a white man going to the, the black fountain and saying, can I have a drink from here, right? It's, it's so outrageous in that time, if you can place yourself in that time period. That's how close to how outrageous it is that Jesus is speaking to this woman. And Jesus, because she's shocked, right? She understands that Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. She said, how can you ask me for a drink? A woman of Samaria. And we see that Jesus says to her, basically, if you think that is shocking, wait till you see what I'm going to say. 
He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That this is basically a quotation of our confession of sin this morning from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2, where God himself calls himself the fountain of living water. And we see, as their interaction goes, this woman is confused. She doesn't see what Jesus is doing. Jesus is using the surroundings around them, right? They're at a well, there's water. He's using this water imagery, this language of wells and living water and thirst to connect with this woman and point her to a higher spiritual reality. And you'll see that she's focused on the external. She's focused on the earthly. She's focused on the physical. And she gets caught up on these things throughout their whole conversation. And Jesus is not swayed. He's not... He's not, um, he doesn't get off topic. He continues pushing past the external, past the physical, to the spiritual. This idea of spiritual living water. And we see in verses 11 and 12, she still doesn't get it. She says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. Like she's, she's like, okay, living water, you got nothing. You can't get any water. How are you going to give me water? You have nothing to pick water up. She's still on the physical here. She's confused. And in some sense, you can kind of read into some of her statements in verse 12 that she's content with her water. She's like, this well's been here. Our fathers drank from it. Are you greater than our father? Like, what could you give me that would be better than what I have? Right? What could you possibly give me? This living water, whatever you're calling it. How could you give me something better than what I have? I'm content with what I have. This well from our father, Jacob. And he says in verses 13 and 14 that the water that I'm speaking about is different. That it is truly satisfying. And he contrasts this with the well that she is talking about. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That this water that you've been getting from, this water that you're talking about, this water that you're focused on, it's not going to satisfy. Everyone who drinks of this will be thirsty again. But the water that I give will truly satisfy. And still, she doesn't get it. In verse 15, even though she says, give me this water, she's still focused on the physical, right? And we can see this. We've seen this in John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Jesus says, you must be born again. What does Nicodemus say? Can I go back into my mother's womb a second time? He's focused on the physical. If you look at John chapter 6, Jesus had just fed the 5,000 people. And he's talking about this manna from heaven that he's going to give. And the people say, give me this bread. Give me more bread. But they're focused on the physical. And he says, I am the bread that's come down from heaven. That all throughout John's gospel, the people continue to be focused on the physical, on the external, when Christ is talking about the internal and the spiritual and the higher faith. 
so we see in verse 15 that even though she's saying, give me this water, she really doesn't. She's still focused on the physical, and she just doesn't want to have to come back to this well. It says in verse 15, I don't want to have to come here to draw water. Again, commentators point out this word here, that's translated as the word here, here, that's confusing, is the only time this is used in John's Gospel. And that it's drawing attention to this idea that she doesn't want to come here to the well. She doesn't want to, she wants to, she wants to avoid people, this reputation that she has as a sinner. She just doesn't want to come here. She's like, if I can get this special magical water, then I won't have to come back here. I won't have to be seen. I won't have to be made fun of. I won't have to be here again. And sadly, this is how a lot of people think about Christianity. And let me explain that a little bit. Many times in you know, Christian circles, people use Christianity as sort of this veil, right? This veil that they can put and say, you know, I'm a Christian, right? They can put on a good face. And she says, give me this water. The people in John 6 say, give me this bread. But they really just want the physical blessings, right? They want the physical benefits of being around Christ and the things of God, right? The people in John 6, they've just been miraculously fed. They want more of that. They want more miracles. They want more bread. They want their bellies filled. And this woman just wants water so she doesn't have to come back here. And oftentimes this can happen. But we see Jesus is not swayed by this, that he sees her deeper need. That she doesn't just need water. She doesn't even just need not to come back here. That she needs something more than that. He knows what's really going on. He sees her deepest need. And like he does throughout the Gospels, he gets to the heart of the issue right away. And so we see this discussion in verses 16 through 24. Jesus sort of turns the conversation here. And he says to her, go and call your husband. That her greatest need is this lack of satisfaction. That she's been trying to find satisfaction in the things of the world. In the things of the world. In her sin, really. And if we think about finding our satisfaction in anything other than God, it's only going to lead to us feeling empty and ultimately sin. And he exposes this in her. He says, go, call your husband. And listen to, what, listen to this exchange. You could spend a whole sermon on just this exchange. He says, go, call your husband and come here. And she said, I have no husband. And he says, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you are now with is not your husband. He's saying, you're right. You've told the truth. But it's a half-truth. It's a deceptive truth. Why? Because it is true. She doesn't have a husband. But she's not telling the full story. She's had five husbands. She's lived this life. Most commentators believe the reason he's bringing this up, more than likely, these weren't five lawful divorces. They were five unlawful ones. Maybe even brought about by her adultery or whatever. You can think there's discussion there about what's going on. But this fact that she has five husbands. But more than all that, at minimum, 
the person that she's living with now is not her husband. So she's living with someone that is not her husband. So she's told the truth, right? I don't have a husband. But what's really going on is she's in sin. She's in sin, and more than likely, she's lived a life of sin in this area. She's tried to find satisfaction in these relationships, and Jesus sees that there is no ultimate satisfaction there, right? He's not fooled. He sees all things, and he brings her sin to the surface because he knows this. Without knowing her, without ever meeting her before, this is, again, the divine knowledge of our Lord. He sees her past. He sees the sin that she's in right now. And he says it. And, and look at her response. Notice her response. She says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. She doesn't fall down on her knees. She doesn't say, You're right. I need help. Help me. I'm living in sin. Whatever. Help me. Help me. She deflects. She changes the topic. She's like... Oh, I perceive you're a prophet. There's no conviction of her sin. There's no deep repentance. She just changes the subject. And she changes the subject to a theological debate. She starts talking about the mountains on which you're to worship. Right? The people of Samaria, they set up their own mountain, Mount Gerizim. That's where the Samaritans worshipped, in contrast to Mount Zion in Jerusalem, where the Jews worship. So she wants to have a theology debate. And maybe you've encountered this as you've tried to witness to someone, maybe, or a coworker, or someone. You bring up the, the truthfulness of Christ and the gospel, and maybe even pointed out someone's sin, and they want to go to a theological debate. They want to talk about genocide in the Old Testament, or they want to talk about um, whatever they want to talk They want to go on a debate. They don't want to talk about their sin. They don't want to talk about what's really going on in their heart. They would rather deflect and change the subject. And Jesus stays with her. He doesn't get discouraged. He doesn't get angry at her. He stays with her. And so she brings up this debate about mountains and where to worship. And she asks him, where should we worship? And Jesus says to her, woman, an hour is coming when neither on this worship mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. That under the old covenant, people were to worship at the temple, right? That's where you came to worship God. People would pilgrim from, do pilgrimages from all over, hundreds of miles, to come to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the physical temple with physical priests. And they would travel to Mount Zion, the holy city, Jerusalem, and they would go to the temple. And Jesus is saying something fascinating here. He's saying that the hour is coming when it won't be on a mountain that you worship, a physical mountain. What is Jesus saying? He clarifies in verse 23, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That once was what once was limited to the physical temple in Jerusalem, Jesus is saying, I am now the true temple. As we've been going through John's Gospel, what have we seen? The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus said in John chapter 2, He was talking about the temple of His body. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He was talking about the temple 
of his body. That in Christ's incarnation, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his outpouring of the Spirit, he would produce true worshipers. True worshipers, not externally, not those that just go to the temple and offer sacrifices, but true worshipers that worship in spirit and in truth. And that from them will come springs of living water. That once that what was once limited to the physical temple is now found in Christ, the true temple of God, and by the pouring out of his spirit, he would produce this in his people. True worshipers of God in spirit and in truth. He's pointing her to this new covenant reality of Christ and his people as the true temple, the true place where people worship. And I won't spend as much time on it as I want, but there's so much Old Testament imagery here, it's almost hard to not talk about, right? We've talked about this idea of rivers of living water, of springs of life, of the temple. All these things are connected in Scripture. In the book of Genesis, maybe if you've been, as you started your Bible reading plan one year, you were going through the book of Genesis, it's talking about the Garden of Eden, and then it says there was a river that flowed out of it. And you're like, why is this in the Bible? It's very interesting that in the Garden of Eden, a river flew out, flowed out from the garden. And as you go through the scriptures, you see that in scripture, and specifically in the prophets, there was this picture of a temple that would have a river flowing out of it. And this is the Bible's way of saying that Eden was a type of temple. It was a sanctuary of God's presence where he dwelt with his people. Obviously, sin came into the picture and ruined all of that. They're cast out of the temple, garden, sanctuary. A flaming angel is put in the front of it. This is copied in the temple that was in Israel. On the, on the curtain that divided the Holy of Holies from everything else, there was cherubim on that curtain. All that to say, the Garden of Eden was a type of temple. It had a river flowing out of it. The book of Ezekiel talks about this last day's temple, this end times temple that will have a river of water flowing out of it. The prophets talk about on this day, the day of the Messiah, there shall be a fountain open to cleanse from sin and uncleanness. And it later goes on in the book of Zechariah, it says, in that day, the day of the Messiah, living water will flow. All this imagery, living water, the days of the Messiah, this temple are all converging in this one passage in John chapter 4. And this woman recognizes this. And we see this in verse 25. She says, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus had not mentioned anything about the Messiah. He hasn't said Messiah. He hasn't said Christ. She understands what he's saying. She understands that all this language of living water, this temple, this place of God's worship, this age of the Messiah, all these things are pointing toward this time when the Messiah, the Christ, will come and make all things right. She understood what was going on, but she didn't understand who she was speaking to. And Jesus says, I who speak to you Am he. 
He's saying, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. I am the one who will give you the living water of eternal life by the Spirit. I'm the one who sees your sin and yet pursues you. I am the true temple, the place where true worship will be focused. And in the Greek here, Jesus is saying that he is God. In the Greek, the, the words that are put together are ego eimi, I am. This is the same language in the Old Testament used of Yahweh. When Moses is at the burning bush, he says, what shall I say your name is? And the Lord replies, I am. I am that I am. Yahweh is translated into Greek, ego eimi. He's saying, I and not only the Messiah, I am God. I am God. And so we'll talk next week about her response to this. We'll talk about the kind of, you know, what happens after this encounter. She ends up going into her city, telling all the people about this Messiah, about what he has done. And we'll talk about that next week. So there's a lot of things that a lot of application that we could draw from this passage. I mean, there's so much I didn't talk about. You could talk about how to witness to unbelievers. You could talk about the proper worship of God. What does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? You could talk about this idea of the gospel expanding not only to the Jews, but the Samaritans, Judea, and the ends of the earth. You could talk about this redemptive historical idea that Salvation is from the Jews. What does it mean that Jesus was a Jew, this Jewish Messiah? You could even talk about all these sorts of things. And yet, I think if we talk about those, we would miss something if we didn't talk about this and understand this first. That ultimately, what we're supposed to see in John chapter 4 is that Christ is the one that brings true longing satisfaction. True longing satisfaction and lasting satisfaction that the reality is that everyone is thirsty everyone's thirsty anyone in the world is thirsty they are hungry they are longing for satisfaction and as we read in our confession of sin we look for it in other ways we've forsaken the god the fountain of living water and we've made our own cisterns but they're broken a cistern is a big thing that you carry water in and so we try to carry our own water through satisfaction in worldly things, right? We have money, entertainment, power, our families, control, drinking, sex, marriage, all these things, the world and us, if we're honest, we seek for satisfaction in those things. We try to find our meaning and our purpose in those. And this woman at the well was no different. She was looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. She was looking to make her own cisterns, to have this water, but they're broken and they're leaking and they don't truly satisfy. And Jesus comes to her and he says, come to me, come to me. He'll later go on and say these beautiful words in John chapter 7. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And I just said everyone is thirsty. And what I mean is not that everyone is thirsty in the same way. Everyone needs 
the Lord. Everyone needs God. But what Jesus is talking about, what he says, if anyone is thirsty, I think what he means is if anyone recognizes their need. It's not just those that are thirsty, but those that recognize their need for real living water. That is the requirement of coming to Christ. It's not having your life together. It's not being perfect. This woman was far from perfect. She had a sin-staying life. But by the end, she recognizes her need. She's seen the Messiah. She's had an encounter with the Lord. And she longs, she truly thirsts for living water. And Christ says, I'm the living water. I'm the bread from heaven, the one that can truly satisfy. Your sin, your guilt will be covered by me. I will wash you clean. I will reconcile you to God. I will do this. He's the one that truly satisfies. And one, one other thing to point out is that Christ seeks and saves his sheep. Christ seeks and saves his sheep. That he had to go to Samaria. He had to go to Samaria. He had to. Why? Because this woman was one of his sheep. What does he say in John chapter 10? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And he actually says, I have sheep that aren't of this fold, meaning of the Jews. But I have other sheep that are not of this fold. They also will hear my voice and come to me. He is the one that seeks and saves the lost. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. Christ seeks and saves his people. Now we don't have to doubt that for a second. He will go to the ends of the earth through the proclamation of the gospel to save his people. And we read in the last book of the Bible the consummation of all these things. And we see this imagery come up one last time in the book of Revelation. In the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, we have this great fulfillment of all things. And John, the same writer, says this, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. There will be no need of lamp or light or sun, for the sun and the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That this river of water is a picture of the life that God will give to his people, this everlasting life. He says, come to me and I will give you eternal life. And we read from Hebrews chapter 12 that even now, it says, you have come to the heavenly Mount Zion. That our worship is accepted by God. We don't have to go to a physical place to worship God. We don't have to travel across the Middle East to worship God in Jerusalem. We worship in spirit and in truth. When we gather together, when we come, the writer of Hebrews says, we are worshiping in the heavenly Mount Zion. That's amazing to think about. We have an audience with the God of the universe because of the work of Christ and the spirit of God. So as we close this morning, we're reminded that, as Daryl said, 
We are the woman at the well. <laughs> we are the immoral. We are sinners. And before we came to Christ, we wanted nothing to do with God. We changed every conversation to be about something else. And yet, our Savior pursued us. And used the proclamation of the gospel, used the word of God to convict us of our sin and show us our need for the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, let's thank our Lord this morning and, and worship him today. So, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy, for our undeserved grace that you've given us. That we cannot earn it. That this woman did nothing to earn your favor. But she was one of your sheep. And you sought her out and you saved her. And we pray that you would do the same. That as we, your people, have been called by your word and spirit. We pray that this church, Lord, would be a means by which people are saved. Not because there's anything special about us, but because... Your word is proclaimed and the gospel is proclaimed and it is by the gospel alone. It is by hearing with faith that we are saved. And I pray that sheep would come, they would hear the word of the Lord and they would come to their father, the great shepherd, and be changed as this one was, as we are. So Lord, I pray that your will would be done, that we would be those that worship in spirit and truth this morning. And that you would receive glory and praise for your great work of salvation. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. We come now to the Lord's Supper. Where we're reminded each week of the culmination of all these things, right? We can talk about this woman in the well and worship and all these things. But each week we talk about what it means that Christ is the bread from heaven, that he is true bread, true drink, that his work on the cross, his body being broken, his blood being spilled, is the only means by which this woman or us can be made right with God. That she needed a substitute, an atonement for her sin. She needed this Messiah just as we do. And as I've said before, this meal... It's not for those that think they have it all together. It's not for the religious elite. It's not for those that feel like they've obeyed the law enough. It is for those that see and feel their need. <laughs> those that see that they cannot do it on their own. This meal, coming up and taking the red wine, is admitting, I cannot. <laughs> it's proclaiming, I am not enough. But Christ is. He's done it. He's brought living water, true bread, true drink to my soul. And I'm relying and trusting in him by faith alone. So each week we're called to confess our sins the ways that in our life, maybe in the past, maybe it's from years ago, sin that we've committed that we have not brought before the Lord. Maybe it's sin that we're struggling with now. We're called to take a moment, reflect, confess, but ultimately to look to the cross, to look to Christ's body and blood spilt for us and rejoice because of what he has done. So let's pray for this meal. Lord, we thank you for this Lord's Supper, this means of grace by which your word is presented to us in a physical form. <laughs> that just as, as we hear the word, the sacrifice of Christ, now we see the word, your body broken, your blood spilled, 
in our place condemned, he stood. That he took the curse, he took the punishment that we deserve so that we could be made right. Lord, this morning as we eat and drink, may we, may we trust and look to Christ this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So just form a line and come as you're able. reminded each week that this bread is representing the body of Christ broken for us. May we take, eat, remember, and believe that his body was broken so that our sin might be Oh, oh, oh. 
now to a time where we receive our offerings, where we're reminded that in the Old Testament, people were required to give a certain amount for the physical temple and the priest, and now in the New Covenant, we are called to give with joy, <laughs> to give with gratitude for what God has given us, that we are all priests in the household of God, the priesthood of all believers, that we worship in spirit and in truth, and now we give not physical sacrifices of animals, but physical sacrifices and offerings of our money, of the things that God has given us so that his gospel might go to the ends of the earth, that the gospel might be proclaimed, that the ministry of God might be supported so that people might be saved. And we remember that and we, we worship God through this act of giving. So let's pray for our offering. Lord, we thank you for all that you've provided for us, all that you've graciously given it to us. Not only in your acts of providence, but in your acts of redemption. And we pray this morning that we would give a portion of what we've been given by you, by what you've provided for us. We give it back to you, not because you need it, but because you call us to give so that we might be made more in need of you. <laughs> not physical things, not physical money, it can't satisfy us. And so we give now. We give knowing that you alone satisfy, and we give so that your gospel might go to the ends of the earth. And we pray that you would multiply these, these small, humble offerings for the work of your kingdom. We pray all these things in your son's name. Stand with me as we sing hymn number 13. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore, through Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Grace and peace of our Lord as you go. One quick announcement. In two weeks, um, Pastor Bruce Hollister of the OPC will be coming to guest preach. We'll be gone all week um, out of state, so he's coming to guest preach. And a way to just kind of welcome him and just have another fellowship. We'll be doing a fellowship lunch. The church will provide the food. We'll just try to be in the conference room after worship. That'll be in two weeks, so keep that on your calendar. So. Let's
Chris. Amen.